thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. You could say that there's a lot of bragging about humility in the Abrahamic scriptures. The same goes for the Dharmic religious texts. In the more parochial world of English literature, humility is often lampooned. Think of Charles Dickens and Uriah Heep. But what of scientists? Well, we need look no further than Charles Darwin to find a genuinely humble man. Here's a passage from a letter he wrote to his friends Joseph Hooker, quoted in the Naked Scientist podcast, Naked Evolution. My dear Hooker, I can easily prepare an abstract of my whole work but I can hardly see how it can be made scientific for a journal without giving facts, which would be impossible. If the referees were to reject it as not strictly scientific, I would perhaps publish it as a pamphlet. If you see Lyle, will you tell him how truly grateful I feel for his kind interest in this affair of mine? You must know that I look at it as very important for the reception of the view of species not being immutable, that the greatest geologist and botanist in England take an interest in the subject. Yours sincerely, Charles Darwin. Humility is our subject this week, and boy do I need some. And with me to discuss it are the art historian Dr Ilaria Bernocchi, an old friend of Naked Reflections and presently at the University of Warwick, and Dr Anna Alexandrova, who is a reader in the philosophy of science and a fellow of King's College, Cambridge. Anna wrote a piece which I'd like to quote to you because it really struck me in preparation for this podcast about her teacher who taught her to immerse herself into a science so deeply as to be able to see philosophical problems from the inside. Well, welcome to you both. Let's start off with this because I think in our hearts we all value praise, recognition and esteem, but how do we square this with a sense of humility? Anna, start with you. I'm not sure I find it surprising that humility as a virtue comes in tension with other virtues that various ethical traditions recognize. Decisiveness and pride and autonomy and conviction will obviously come in tension with uh, humility on most definitions to the extent that humility means doubting, maintaining a doubt of any one of your convictions. It will also sometimes come in conflict with virtues such as kindness, because suppose kindness requires you not to doubt your conviction to the other person's humanity or quality. 
So as any of those human ideals, it is uh, vague and fuzzy around the edges. And the hard part is always trying to figure out what humility means in each particular case and what is it that you should be humble about. Ilaria, artists aren't necessarily known as being the most humble of creatures, are they? No, no, they're not. We have the extreme cases like famously Picasso, who was, you know, peculiar man in many ways, a genius. But yes, I think they have to constantly negotiate their self-confidence about their work because painting and art and any form of expression, of artistic expression, requires, in fact, a certain form, I think, of narcissism, of desire to be seen and to be out there and to manifest and to create something. But at the same time, humility probably is required from the point of view of their development as artists for their growth. So I think artists are often subjects to their impulses more than their rationality, their reason. So they struggle between the two poles. Van Gogh was said to be a, an artist was particularly humble. Well, you know, we have Picasso, we have Rubens, we have Titian, who are very sure of their, of their craft. Or we have Michelangelo, who had doubts about his own faith, not his own ability, but his ability to rise up to the challenge of certain religious subjects that he respected profoundly. And how do they depict humility? Well, humility tends to be a religious subject. One very common iconography that comes to mind is the Madonna of the humility. Humility comes from the Latin for humus, which is earth, land. And it's also the same root, it is said, of homo, man. So we come from the earth and humility is something that should be built into us. But of course, the Madonna of the humility is a Madonna sitting usually in a garden, sitting on the floor, sitting on the grass, on the ground, or on a very low cushion and showing the Christ child. And that's the idea that if, if even the Madonna was able to sit on the ground in a very humble, poor condition, but at the same time, very dignified, of course, this could be a teaching to be passed on. And of course, humility, humilitas, was also a personification. So the personification of humility was very often female, as it is to be expected, a woman looking down, gazing down, very humbly, very modestly. This has to do with the fact that the Latin word for humility, again, humilitas, is female. At the same time, of course, humility tends to be, uh, perhaps Dr. Alexandrova knows much more about this than I do, but tends to be uh, associated with women. Anna, would you come in on that? It sounds right. In the context that I know about in science, humility is a feature of your attitude to your knowledge. So to the extent that the knowledge bearer in the Western tradition is very often male, humility is something that's supposed to be ascribed to a man. And uh, of course, that becomes very difficult because the ideal of a man is not necessarily someone humble, and the idea of a man, a scientist, is not at all humble, typically. So what is the importance of humility in your work to do with well-being, Anna? So a recent study claims that people with humility are also people who are able to be protected better from stressful events in life and thereby having greater mental health and greater ability to withstand slings and arrows. So that is interesting. And, you know, I think some correlations do stand up, but we need to be very careful about 
this research, humility in those questionnaires is defined entirely in self-reported ways. So do you report yourself to be a humble person? So one of the measures of humility is, uh, do you think you have an adequate assessment of your abilities? And if you answer this question, yes, then you gain a point of humility. That's obviously not. Humility is understood more widely as an attitude where you are objectively humble about what you know or about your attitude. So we need to be very careful about these claims of positive psychology to find empirical support for humility. It makes me think it's it's a curious association and I find very interesting because I I look at virtue in art and ethics in relation to art. It's one of my bigger topics. I find it very interesting the connection between virtue and humility, because it seems sometimes, and I would be very curious to know what Dr. Alexandrova uh, thinks of it. I find that humility is perhaps a very unnatural virtue for humans. And yet it's something that goes against our very natures. The Greeks talked about hubris. So daring to be like the gods and daring to overstep the mark as something much more natural to men where we challenge our limitations. So humility seems to be something we have to work on with a lot of awareness instead of something that comes natural to us. And the idea that is shared in Christianism, but also that I know in Confucianism, that humility is the basis for all the other virtues, it's a strange foundation being something so alien, apparently, to human nature. Alien. Well, I'm not sure it is alien. It is no more alien than kindness and cooperation and, you know, respect for others, also something that we need to work on and and develop. I worry when we put humility as uh, some kind of a virtue that cannot be trumped by other virtues. I think humility is no more and no less important than lots of other attitudes. So uh, I guess uh, of uh, men. And that is, I think, well demonstrated. And that's why women get punished so much more for violations of this norm than anyone else. Art suggests that humility or the forms of humility, the iconographies of humility are adopted much more for representations of females. But it's true that one of the symbols, the traditional symbols of humility, humility overcoming uh, superbia, is uh, David overcoming Goliath. And in art, uh, for instance. So it's one of the strongest symbols. And it's true that other historical symbols of humility also belong to men, quite curiously. We talk about the tradition says that Scipio, the Roman general, was particularly humble and continent and capable of conducting himself and having mercy of his victims. And there are many representations of that. And since I was citing the Confucian tradition, uh, there is a beautiful uh, scroll with a tale of a Chinese official visiting a foreign land and behaving horribly and without humility. And to teach him a lesson about humility, his host decides to make him fall in love with a courtesan disguised as an official daughter, so marriageable woman. He falls in love with her, he writes a poem for her because she plays so beautifully that he manages to seduce him. And then the day after, the arrogant official is put in front of his downfall of having broken the law and having fallen in love with a Chinese courtesan. And this is a lesson about humility. You have to conduct yourself, even if you're a man, and the more so if you are in power, if you are a a high official, with humility, with respect for those who host you and with, with whom you are dealing. So I would agree that it is traditionally associated with women, 
But at a very high level, it's also something that is required of men of power in a, in a strange sort of turn. It's interesting how you've identified individual men, Ilaria, because I don't know whether it extends to the institution. So you mentioned David and Goliath and the underdog uh, fighting the Colossus. But once David becomes king, how much humility he continues to have is open to doubt. So I wonder if it's possible for institutions to be humble. Here we are in Cambridge and the University of Cambridge isn't necessarily known for its humility. So is it possible for institutions to be humble? Yes, uh, thank you. That's a great question. So uh, let me focus on in particular institutions of knowledge creation, such as universities. So if you ask me whether it's important for an individual scientist to be humble, you know, I would say yes, but no more important than other things too. And I think it's, you know, when we put uh, Darwin as an exemplar of humbleness, uh, you know, for every Darwin, there is the arrogant uh, Einstein who didn't go through the motions that Darwin would go, very carefully representing the limits of his knowledge. I mean, it worked for Darwin to some extent, right, because he didn't like the confrontation and his theory was like a red rag to the bull of Victorian establishment. It was very important for him to remove himself from certain controversies and let others fight them out. But it also didn't work out for him to some extent because he had no shred of doubt about the correctness of uh, theory of evolution. And yet nowadays the creationists jump on various quotations by Darwin about how all he himself thought it was only a theory. So it's not clear that that strategy for an individual scientist is the important strategy. However, if we look at the collective level, is it important for science as an institution to be humble? There, the case seems to be overwhelming. Yes, because epistemic humility, i.e. humility about uh, what you know, is the basis of criticism and the basis of peer review and the basis of holding ourselves accountable for claims we make. So it's extremely important to implement practices that ensure humility at the macro level. I think that the theme of humility is particularly interesting in these days when we expect a sort of a strong scientific statements, a strong scientific response to something like the global pandemic. I think scientists must be quite used to making very fine distinctions between things, used to nuance, and must implement very strong, very radical, very dramatic measures of containment and control and advise governments about them and give answers that can be understood by the wider public. I think the theme of humility must be particularly hot at the moment. How do we maintain our scientific accuracy in the face of having to be self-confident enough to say, close everything, do this, do that, let's give these answers, as if we knew what's actually going on? I think scientists must have found themselves in a very strange position in the past months with respect to their usual practices of prudence and scientific study. That's exactly right, Laria. The goal in any scientific advice is to give the very best possible basis for a policy and the very best possible advice, the one that's borne out by as much evidence as you can gather and the one that you can stand by. Uh, in the situation of an unprecedented event, we are shrouded in uncertainty. 
it's not clear what is the right response and it's not clear how much we can learn from one situation to the next and what can be a right response in one country might not be a right response in another country in a different podcast earlier this summer on humility i spoke to a swedish philosopher and economist eric engner who thought that widespread criticism of more lax Swedish approach to lockdown was exactly a failure of epistemic humility, failure to recognize great uncertainty about what is the right response. So still, I would say that you know, humility is fine and good. It definitely, though, comes in conflict with other things that we expect from people who take care of us, such as decisiveness and standing by your decisions that you thought were the best decisions. So I want my doctor to be humble in the sense, uh, you know, recognizing limits of what they know and communicating them to me. However, I don't want them to be humble in the sense of, you know, not taking an action that needs to be taken with urgency. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Ilaria Bonocchi and Anna Alexandrova. We're talking about humility. Going back to Darwin, it seems that his innate humility was more than just an attractive trait. It was instrumental in helping him make his groundbreaking discoveries. Here's Sarah Custer Perry speaking on the Naked Scientist episodes, Fat Dinosaurs and the Descent of Man. Darwin also makes the comparison of mental characteristics such as tool use, altruism and kindness in humans, apes, monkeys and dogs, concluding that the difference in mind, great as it is, certainly is one of degree and not kind. The idea that our mental abilities and moral ideas were merely one level on a scale that also included animals was abhorrent to many, and the debate over intelligence in animals is still going on today. Anna, that sort of humility Darwin displayed with regard to human capabilities was crucial to the breakthrough that he made. Is that also true of scientists today when they are particularly offering advice about the pandemic to politicians? How can they help the politicians really understand the advice that they're trying to offer? The advice they're trying to offer is inherently their best guess. And the best guess is can be based on many different sources of evidence. You know, some scientists are modelers and simulators, and they rely on large-scale or small-scale theoretical simulations of uh, the pandemic. Other scientists are qualitative uh, researchers who, you know, really understand a single particular case, so how Wuhan emerged out of pandemic. The very best thing a decision maker can do is to make their advisors a diverse group that the fact that science is multiple and there are many, very many different ways of doing it and very many different ways of interpreting it, then uh, there is no recipe, there is no way of mixing it. There is only joint deliberative decision making where as many experts as possible are heard and uh, information is processed in a way that can be defensible publicly. 
One of the challenges politicians have who are not known for their humility is to listen to a whole variety of different viewpoints. They're almost trained to only listen to one set viewpoint and then understand the advice they're given within that set viewpoint. I'd like to bring it on rather than simply attacking politicians is, is also to consider religious institutions which are not known uh, like politicians for their humility. And yet they preach humility. Religious institutions don't seem to have the ability to laugh at themselves. And yet cartoons are all about laughing at oneself or laughing at other people. I wonder, Ilari, if there's uh, anything there. We're speaking around the time of the trial of the people who attacked and killed the Charlie Hebdo reporters over the cartoons. And Charlie Hebdo decided to publish those cartoons again. And without getting into the question of freedom of speech or freedom of expression, I wonder if we can tease out this sort of satire and puncturing pride, which I suppose people would think of uh, when they think of humility. Oh, well, caricature is born in it. Born even sometimes to go back to Leonardo, to his studies on heads that he d d decided to modify to see what, what they look like with a big nose, with a small nose, with a very old lady, very young lady, etc. And But then caricature is born, uh, is, you know, born at the end of the 16th century in Bologna. And people were trying to find out how far they could take the human form, what nature, some our theorists talked about perfect deformity, pushing deformity to its perfect extreme. But of course, caricature has a golden moment in the 18th century with the Enlightenment. In France, we have Honoré Daumier. Uh, in England, William August, very famously. A satire in England in the 18th century through prints and pamphlets, which circulated, uh, was very common, was very refined. And really like to point at customs and traditions and the clothes of power and try to disassemble them and show them for who they were. So caricature and satire, especially visually, is about making a revelation, revealing the true nature of who's underneath the clothes. It can be a clergy, can be a politician, can be a beautiful woman, can be anything, any institution, anything considered sacred and prized and impossible to discuss is the object of satire. I'm intrigued that some writers and some artists were keen that all their works were destroyed after their death. Is that humility or is that psychosis? I mean, what's going on there? It depends probably on the case, but I think artists are perfectionists by nature. It can be a sign of the opposite of humility, the ambition to have made more an awareness or a sense that has been produced is not enough to manifest the genius of the artist can lead to this sort of extreme manifestation. So it can actually mean the, quite the opposite. I can't accept my own limitations. I can't accept what I've done, my history with all my failures, and therefore I erase everything I have done. It's quite rare. Artists tend to be you know, narcissistic enough to want to leave some sort of thread, <laughs> some sort of path for the future. It's about being seen anyway. And sometimes even through absence, we are seen. And so even by cancelling, erasing and doing a radical grand geste, we can be seen as artists. Anna, do you come across much humility amongst the academics that you associate with? Uh, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that humility is a virtue that is uh, inculcated in us uh, through the education. We know only that much and we need to go through all the motions to show just exactly what my article establishes and what it doesn't establish and what are the limitations of its methodology and what it shows. So that kind of 
performative humility is uh, absolute uh, core of academic work. We constantly have to perform ourselves as humble. And of course, you know, we talk about how it's actually good for our work to recognize its limits, etc. Just as anywhere else, as Ilaria was saying, narcissism comes against humility, the same in science. The core and the currency of our work is citations and recognition and perhaps having our name next to a theory, attached to a theory. That's the ultimate recognition that we are craving. Therefore, you know, academic work is this complex dance between on the one hand, putting yourself out there and claiming that your view is original just enough, right, to get it past your colleagues. It's exhausting. It is exhausting. It's very hard to be ambitious and humble at the same time, I think. One way for me, usually, to identify someone I would like to emulate or to follow or that I think is humble is the sense of humor. Humor is a very good, I think, measure of uh, humility and the ability to see through things. So generally, when someone has a good sense of humor, perhaps humility is something you don't reveal in everyday life as much. But sense of humor is a good giveaway of uh, at least a sense of you know being grounded and being able to see things for what they are. So that would be my guess. Anna? If I have to think of a person that inspired me in their humility, as Ilaria already intimated, there's something contradictory about, about that very idea that, you know, somebody shows their humility so much that it becomes uh, somehow great and heroic. You know, it's very, very easy to think of examples in my field of people who are extremely important but have not been humble. So like Karl Popper, a famous theorist who would get up and speak in the seminars until the speaker had to be carried out practically. You know, philosophy in general had, contemporary philosophy had a very confrontational culture. Uh, When I think of humility, I think, because, uh, you know, I'm interested in science, I think of a word that is intentionally interdisciplinary, intentionally local, and intentionally focused on specific practical problems, rather than a work that is uh, grand theoretical big solutions to world problems. Well, I wouldn't want to push my luck by going on too long. We've reached the end of this podcast. My profound thanks to our guests, Ilaria Benocchi and Anna Alexandrova. I'd like to end with one of my favourite quotes from Oscar Wilde. Now, I find hidden somewhere away in my nature something that tells me that nothing in the whole world is meaningless and suffering least of all. That something is hidden away in my nature, like a treasure in a field. It's called humility. Well, if you'd like what you've heard, please get in touch with any reflections of your own. You can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. And let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. 
the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.